Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our morning that we can gather together and hear your word and worship your name. We do thank you for freedom and the opportunity to preach your gospel in peace. We do pray from the Sunday school to the worship to the sermon, Lord, that we would honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have three slides that we're going to be finishing here today in Proverbs. And then I have a little bit of an introduction to an eschatological topic that I've been working on. And I was very impressed with what Bob has been doing in Acts 20, where he is taking the theology before the church and say, help me refine this. And I want to do something on that order with a sermon message that I'll be working on for, I guess it's not a sermon, but it's going to be a radio message for YouTube. And it's out of Revelation chapter 12. So we're going to finish here, though, our section in Proverbs chapter 4. And I want you to remember that we left off with this idea that believing parents, providing that, of course, they are believers and godly, give godly wisdom to their children, particularly sons from their father. That's what this section is about. And the idea is if the son won't listen to their father, they're not going to have a life that goes well in the land. And we made the segue from that to if you won't listen to your earthly father, you're more prone not to listen to your heavenly father. If you don't think that the wisdom of your earthly father is worth hearing, it does sometimes carry over to saying, I don't want to listen to the wisdom of the heavenly father. And again, Proverbs is not giving us absolutes. There's always exceptions. So anytime I tell you this, remember, this is the generality. Last time we talked about generalities. Without generalities, you have no wisdom. But without specifics, you don't have any generalities. Is that right? So um, many of you remember just a few weeks ago, you probably saw the interview with the BBC reporter and Elon Musk. And the BBC reporter says to Elon Musk, well, your site is terribly racist. And Elon Musk says, well, can you give me an example of that? Well, the man has no example. No, I can't think of any. And he says, but it's just been terrible for years. Well, certainly if it's been terrible for years, Elon says, you can give me at least one example. Well, the man can't do it. And it's a good reminder to us, if we do ever enter into a debate, if you have a generality, have two or three specifics that back up the generality. Okay, so without generality, you have no wisdom. That's what the book of Proverbs deals with. But without specifics, you can't have generalities, right? So let's read this text again, verses 10 through 13. Here, Solomon said, Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Now, again, we've labored this point. Notice the term here. Again, we talked about how that has to do with both understanding and believing. And again, that's relevant for the earthly father to be listened to, that is understood and believed by the earthly son. But it's also important in other texts where we would really understand and believe the word of God, our heavenly father. And that's why I think Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. It's again, not just hearing the sounds, but understanding and believing Christ's word. Now remember, I mentioned last time that the term accept here comes from that Hebrew term lakha, which literally means to seize onto them. Uh, think about like you watch football and the ball comes loose and everybody's 
trying to seize on to the loose football. That's kind of the idea here. Seize on to the sayings of your father. Why? Because the years of your life will be many. And again, I think there really is a segue in Proverbs where if an individual is not willing to listen to the wisdom of their, again, implied godly parents, they won't listen to their heavenly father. I think that's implied throughout the book of Proverbs. Also, notice here this term where he says, you will not stumble. The idea of stumbling usually involves sin. Okay, that's usually how it works in the scriptures. The idea of stumbling means that someone stumbles off of the path into error and into ruin. Now, I want to look at some passages that talk about this idea of stumbling and how it relates to sin. Let's turn our Bibles, first of all, to Proverbs 24, 15 through 16. I'll first show you where this term stumbling will be another feature of Proverbs. Proverbs 24, verses 15 through 16. Please turn your Bibles there. The idea of stumbling. Proverbs 24, verses 15 through 16. Notice here the instruction. Again, Solomon says, Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. The idea is when calamity comes, their true colors will show. They will stumble off of the good path. That's the idea. Uh, Let me show you another reference. Let's turn our Bibles to the New Testament. And I'm going to show you how it relates to sin. Luke 17, verses 1 through 2. Luke 17, verses 1 through 2. Here's where Jesus warns about people putting stumbling blocks in front of others and how it would be better if they had a millstone hung around their neck. Luke 17, 1 through 2. Notice he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Now, the term stumbling block, let me stop there, is scandalone. That's where we get our term for scandal. The verb is scandalizo. Okay, so they put a stumbling block. He says it's inevitable that these stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And again, the term stumble at the end is scandalizo. Okay, so certainly the stumbling blocks Jesus has in mind are those that make people sin. It's putting temptation in front of people in which they will deny the Messiah or they'll deny the terms in the new covenant. And isn't it interesting, it's better for a person to perish physically, to have a millstone hung around their neck. He's probably using some hyperbole, but it's better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown to the sea than it is to cause a little one to stumble. Now, who's the little one, by the way? Does it just mean a little child or is it one that has no status? It's, it's a believer, isn't it? So again, it's a believer that has no status in the eyes of the world. That's the little one in Luke. So the idea is if you cause a fellow believer to stumble, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck. Now, in our culture, I want you to think about how apropos this is where you have whole segments of society causing little children, in this case, not using the little ones the same way as Luke does, but 
they, they really do tempt them to get into sexual immorality at a very early age. And again, I think that that would be something that would be an application of Luke 17. Years ago, when I was an airline pilot, I remember the ethos of the age was everyone is just to be left alone. You can do what you want to do. Well, the left isn't content with that today. They want to make sure the children are going to be inundated with sexual sin. The drag shows have to be brought in front of them. That is a stumbling block, causing people to violate their conscience and to violate the terms of the new covenant is certainly something that Jesus would speak out against. And so I just wonder how many sermons have been given in the inner cities where you have left-wing churches that talk about scandalizo and causing a little one, again, in the, in, the, in the terms of Luke 17, it's a believer to stumble, to cause them to succumb to sin. It's a very, very bad thing. Now, let's take that idea back to Proverbs. Stumbling here in Proverbs has to do with certainly stumbling to destruction during your earthly life. But again, it does segue into stumbling into ruin in eternal life. I think that's what we see in the book of Proverbs. So think about it. Again, there's two paths. There's the narrow path, as even Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. Few find it. It's the one that goes to eternal life. And then there's the wide path that the vast majority enter into that heads toward destruction. One of the images that you see in the scriptures is that the righteous are on the narrow path, but what the the threat is for them is that they may stumble off of it. And you're going to actually see that in Proverbs before we finish. I think it's the last slide. Okay, so the idea is we don't want to stumble off of it, that narrow path. That's the idea. The unrighteous certainly do. Okay, um, one other thing I want to mention is, remember I talked about last time this idea of instruction? The instruction here, Masar, is certainly the instruction that is wisdom from parents so that the child can live a long life. But I talked about how Torah is also instruction for the believer. And remember, we mentioned that passage in 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 19. Let me just read that again. I know we looked at it last time, but let me do a little review. I'll read it for you. 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 19. This is David recalling the great Davidic promise that God had given him. And David's response, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. So remember, David recognized that the Davidic promises weren't immediate, but would ultimately be fulfilled in the Messiah in the distant future. He himself says that. But notice he says, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. And he says, um, well, let me just stop there. The term custom, if you have that in your New American Standard Bible, I don't like that rendering. It's actually Torah. And the way I would render it is I put my own rendering down there. And this is instruction. By the way, the ESV has it this way. This is instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. So the reason I mention that is the Davidic covenant, which culminates in the coming of the Messiah, that doctrine is instruction, according to David, for every person, for every human being, Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter your race, class, gender. It's instruction for every human being. And if they won't listen to that instruction, it will be required of them, just as Moses said, 
regarding the prophet that would come after him. Remember, he says, if you won't listen to them, it'll be required of you. That's Deuteronomy 18, 18. That's the same idea that we see here in 2 Samuel 7. So what's the connection? The idea is if you won't take hold of instruction from your earthly parent that leads to life, you're far less likely, again, predicated on the the parent being godly, you're far less likely to want to have and heed instruction from your earthly, your, excuse me, your heavenly father. I think that's implied in the book of Proverbs. And again, again, these are just generalities. Don't, everyone knows a different, someone will say, well, hey, I know of a, a person that they grew up in a godly household and the kid left and then they came back to the Lord and they served the Lord. That's, that's certainly true. Or someone will say, well, I know of a family, they had ungodly parents and the child became a believer. That's certainly true. The idea, though, that Proverbs is dealing with is generalities. Generally, a child who will not break himself by the power of the Spirit, of course, it's only by God's power, if they won't come off of the path to destruction, later in life they're not going to leave it. And that's why it said in Proverbs 22, train up a child not in the way he should go, but train up a child in his way, and when he gets older he will not depart from it. That's the idea. Again, only two ways in Proverbs, the way of the fool, which is synonymous with the way of the child, and there's the way of the wise. Typically, the elder, the person who's been around the earth a long time, the person who knows the scriptures. That's what you see over and over. Now, here we see the need to stay far away from evil people. Verses 14 through 19 He continues, he says, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Do you see the term stumble again? That's a little bit of an inclusio from the passage that we saw in the previous slide. So do you see the stumble? Oops. Everyone see that? Oops. Right here in verse 13. Then you see it six verses later, verse 19. All right, so that's the idea of an inclusio. See the same theme. But let's start at the top. Notice... The path of the wicked, the term path there, orah, is a major thoroughfare. It's one that's well-worn. The term way here, derek, is just a normal road or path. However, they're used synonymously here. So the idea is the path of the wicked is, in fact, synonymous with the way of evil men. They're synonymous. All right, now, notice it says the path of the wicked. That construction denotes ownership. The wicked own this treacherous path. It belongs to them. And what's very interesting is the term orah and the term derek are now used again at the bottom for the righteous. Notice you have the term derek here for path. Or excuse me, that's orah actually. And then you're going to have the term or for light. So notice orah and or, there's a little bit of an assonance right there. Then the way is derek. So you have orah, derek, Everybody look at the screen. The path is Aura, and then the way is Derek again. So Aura and Derek are used twice for the wicked. Aura and Derek are used twice 
down here, once for the righteous. The reason why ora is probably being used by Solomon is that it plays a little bit of assonance, ora and or, light is or. So the way that the Hebrew would hear that is the path of the righteous, ora, is like or. They hear this assonance, and this is how they remember these things. Someone had mentioned that the Hebrews had an oral culture. That's how they memorized a lot of it, because there was rhyme to it. When you and I are reading it in the English, we don't sense the rhyme. But there's a rhyme and a rhythm to it as you read it in Hebrew. So the idea is when you come down to the righteous, the path of the righteous is the light of the dawn. What's the point of that image? I think the point is, is that the righteous can see the path that they're on. That's the idea of being in the light. So the scriptures are a light unto your path. Therefore, you don't what? You don't stumble. Now, the unrighteous, they walk in the darkness, implied they will stumble. Why? Because they don't have the light of God's revelation that's informing their movement, their way of life. That's the idea that I think he's certainly getting into. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 1, 1 through 2. I want to show you, I think, a a passage that really says much the same thing, where we should stay far away from the path of the unrighteous, that we shouldn't emulate them, nor should we want to even be in cahoots with them in any way. We should stay far away from them. Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Listen to what David wrote. He said, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. Does everyone notice the term walk and the term path? Does everyone see that in that passage? Again, the idea that we would have in the New Testament, the term is peripateo, that we are to walk out our faith. Okay, so remember that passage I cite often, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For it says in verse 10, we are created in his image, I'm sorry, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that what? We should walk in them. That's peripateo. That's the idea, is that if you really believe something, you're going to walk it out. Well, in Psalm 1, 1 through 2, the sinners have their own walk, and it's contrary to God. Notice he says in this verse, nor should you sit in the seat of the scoffer. The scoffer are those who always will sneer and mock the promises of God. And the idea is that the unbeliever, as they do that, we as believers shouldn't join in. We should stay far away from that, but instead we should be those who meditate day and night on the scripture. That's the idea. The term meditate, by the way, is not being used in the Old Testament like the modern day, I should say the postmodern day, where they say you have to empty your mind and you meditate by simply having feelings and getting into contact with the spiritual realm. No, meditation for the biblical authors is thinking deeply, cognitively deeply to understand and to believe what is written. So that's how we should contrast ourselves with the unbeliever. They scoff at God's promises. We don't come close to that. We don't emulate it. We want nothing to do with it. Instead, we study the scriptures so that we ourselves don't stumble as they do. So something that I think wisdom shows us is not only should you and I 
not enter into the way of the righteous and follow their actions, but we should stay far away from them. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, Notice this term. Let me give you a term here for violence. Right here. Does everyone see in verse 17, it says, for they, this is the unregenerate, the bread of wickedness, and they drink the what? The wine of violence. What's very interesting to me is the term violence there, Hamas. (laughs) Kind of ironic, huh? I thought, well, that's an easy one to remember the rest of our lives. The term for violence is Hamas, right? And this brought to my mind maybe an application of Proverbs at the macro level, how we should never get in bed, needlessly so, with the ungodly and those who love violence. Uh, To me, if there was ever one man that should have never have been listened to by any world leader, it would have been Yasser Arafat. Um, Yasser Arafat was the head of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, but he wasn't from Palestine. Ironically, PLO took over from a group named Black September. Black September was called Black September. They're a terrorist group because the Israelites, when they moved into the land in 1948, part of the Belfort Declaration was that Jordan was going to be the homeland for those displaced by the Israelites. Well, guess what the Jordanians did to the Palestinians is they kicked them out and they treated them horribly. So that, that happened in September. That's how they got the name Black September. But isn't it interesting, Black September didn't try to kill the Jordanians. They would every now and then, but primarily they tried to kill the Jews. That's how anti-Semitic the world is. The Jordanians mistreat the Palestinians. Let's kill the Jews. So take a man from Egypt named Yasser Arafat, He takes over an organization called Black September. It becomes the PLO. And he is a murderous thug through and through. And if the the world had wisdom from Solomon, they'd say, I want nothing to do with you. We won't listen to you. We won't give you any credence. We won't listen to your evil ways. We'll have nothing to do with you. Let me tell you a story. I read a book called The Missing Peace. You can, uh, M-I-S-S-I-N-G-P-E-A-C-E is written by a man named Dennis Ross. Dennis Ross was the negotiator with Bill Clinton in the 90s where he was trying to broker a peace deal between Yasser Arafat and the Israelis. And I'll never forget, he was on a show, a talk show, and Dennis Ross said, as I would negotiate with Yasser Arafat, it became very clear that even when the Israelis were willing to give 99% of everything they wanted the talks would break down, and he said, you know why? And there's this long pause on the radio. And Dennis Ross, who actually was there at the bargaining table, he was the one who was the broker of the deal. He said, because they want the Israelites dead. That's why it broke down. So I would listen to caller after caller after caller call in. And this is on the Dennis Prager show. He's a, he's a Jewish fellow, conservative. And they would argue with Dennis Ross, saying, well, that's not true. That's a misreading of history. And Dennis Ross was the guy who was at the table. He says, I was there. I was the one who was brokering the deal. The Palestinians want them dead. Fast forward a little bit later in the 1990s, while this was being brokered, this deal between Yasser Arafat, if you recall at the time, the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces was Bill Clinton. We had an opportunity to kill Osama bin Laden And that would have been in the Sudan. But do you know why we didn't kill him in the Sudan and get rid of terrorism? 
because Bill Clinton thought that that would upset the opportunity to get Yasser Arafat in agreement with the Jews on this peace deal. He thought it would upset the peace deal. So again, think about the lack of wisdom. We end up having 9-11 because Osama bin Laden is allowed to go. Yasser Arafat just keeps killing Jews, all because we have people that don't want to get far away from the path of the wicked. They won't shun the evil one. They'll give them credence, and they'll give them a hearing even though they don't deserve one. And I think that that's a macro application that we see. We can certainly see it in our micro lives. Yeah. Do you think, I, I know what the answer is, but I think it would, it's interesting. I want to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah. Why is it that throughout world history, it's the, it's the Jews who are the subject to these pogroms yes. and uh, hatred yeah. and prejudice, and which is really, in a lot of ways, not very rational if you look at the big picture. That's right. Because they're really not a threat to anybody. Right. Is there a spiritual reason yeah. behind that that drives anti-Semitism? Amen. There certainly is. Thanks, Bob, for the softball. Absolutely. And I know you know this, and all of you know this. Certainly Satan wants to wipe out the people of Israel. He wants to make God a liar because God has promised that the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will never, ever be over. And that one day they will come to faith, as we see in uh, Romans chapter 11, one day it says all Israel will be saved. And by the way, those promises of this kingdom that are given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's not just for the Israelites, it's for us. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were grafted in to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That kingdom is your kingdom. Bob one time astutely said, not only were you grafted into their promises, the moment you believed you were grafted in to their persecution. I was just going to say that. Again. That's right. The moment you believed, you were grafted in to their promises and their persecution. Yeah, That's both right. micro and macro. Micro level, there's a passage, you know where it is probably, I, I can't think of it, but it says, when I'm at the bargaining table, I speak for peace and they speak for war. Yes. Where is that passage? It, I speak I, I think... for peace and it's totally totally a prophecy. That's probably a Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. I can't remember it We're either. sitting down at the it's table, the and yeah. I'm speaking peace, and they're speaking war. It's definitely the Israelis and, and yeah. their nemesis. And then, of course, the macro, yeah, micro, macro. The macro would be um, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, and principalities of this dark world. I mean, Satan wants the Jews dead because yes. they're evidence of God. And if he can wipe them out, he can disprove God. Yeah. So that's why he wants to kill them so desperately. I mean, Hitler, why did he pick the Jews? Why didn't he pick, you know, Christians or somebody else? But he goes after Jews. That's right. Exactly right. Um, Rich, very well said. Frederick the Great famously asked one of his underlings, Give me a quick proof that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And the man replied, apparently, Israel. And the idea is that there were Amalekites, there were Jebusites, there were Canaanites, there were Hittites and Horites and Amorites. And you could go on and on. They're all gone. But there are still Israelites. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who's made Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a promise, and he's made us the same promise. If you will come to faith in him, in the Jewish Messiah, the kingdom that's coming to Israel that will reign upon the whole earth is going to be your kingdom. But it is a kingdom that's going to be headquartered not in Moscow or Minnesota 
you know, Minneapolis is not going to be headquartered. It's going to be headquartered in Jerusalem out of Israel. Yeah, I'm sorry, Luann, you've got something. And Brian, did, were you, Brian, Brian, you had your hand up before I did. Oh, Do you want to talk? Okay. I just had two things, and one of them, you know, when we're talking about this anti-Semite stuff, but, you know, how just how the left is so, they're twisting of stuff because now it's popular to, you know, if you criticize George Soros because he's Jewish, you yeah. know, suddenly now you are an anti-Semite just because you're criticizing right. George Soros. You know, right. it's just craziness. But yeah. the other thing I was going to say is that in uh, First and Second Timothy, you know, it talks about fleeing um, these, you know, evil things. Yeah. But in the context of what we're living in today, just like you said, I mean, these, you know, encourage these uh, trying to encourage children to transgender and things like that. I mean, it is just the ultimate debauchery. And, yes. you know, I mean, I, you know, you struggle with this going toe to toe. I mean, I think about every time I go visit my mom and she's in this institution, it's awful the dehumanization that takes place. And you feel like you're always toe to toe with people. Yeah. And it, it's so exhausting, but the, it's so evil and in your face. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, Luann, you're absolutely right. I think what's missing is this understanding in the culture that people are made in the image of God. As image bearers, they need to be protected. and. Um, especially when we come to the spiritual realm, this notion that people can be exposed to sinful behavior and not succumb to it is really a fool's errand, especially to do it to kids, to expose them to the debauchery of the world. And really what it is, it's a form of mockery because what the culture is saying, uh, Karl Marx is famous for this, thou shall have no other gods before Karl Marx. I mean, if you ever read his background, he did a triumphal entry mocking the triumphal entry of Christ um, with a fellow theologian who had been kicked out of a seminary. A great source for this is Paul Kangor's book, The Devil and Karl Marx. Um, you can read about all of his um, shenanigans, but Karl Marx was an evil man. And those who follow him and follow his doctrines, they are doing evil. And what you see in all these totalitarian societies is they, they cannot tolerate Judeo, a Judeo-Christian ethic. Why? Because there's no other God besides Karl Marx. And so they have to get rid of any of the ethos that comes from the preceding uh, religion that was in place, whatever it may be. But that's the way the Marxists operate. And absolutely, we're going to see the consequences of that over and over again. Yes, Linda. Um, no, I'm sorry. I'll come to you, Brian. I'm sorry. I'll come back to you. Okay, good. <laughs> the, the verse you were talking about, I am for peace, but when I speak there for, for war, it's Psalm 120, verse 7. Oh, Psalm. Thank you. What is it again? Say it again. Psalm 120, verse 7. 120, verse 7. Excellent. Thank you for finding that. Psalm 120, verse 7. So, Brian, you had something. Yeah, real quick, I just wanted to, I try to put everything into the perspective of God's providence. Yes. So the example you gave with Osama bin Laden and Bill Clinton, it just so happened at that particular time, God had a spineless jellyfish, Bill Clinton, who wouldn't pull the trigger, yeah. okay? But hypothetically say that he had somebody else in there and he did pull the trigger, Okay, yeah. th th that's not changing God's plan. Absolutely, th that's God not doing anything. So right. we look at today and we go, well, if only so and so was running the or so and so was elected yeah. or yep. blah blah blah. It, it, uh, he, God may he's going to alter and c come this way, but but the end result is always going to be the same. Absolutely, you're right. So this is compatibilism that humans are free 
and God is sovereign. But at the same time, as we say, yes, God is sovereign, we can also impugn human responsibility and say, you know what, that wasn't a wise decision. It was not wise to allow your whole foreign policy to hinge on negotiating with Yasser Arafat. <laughs> um, that's a bad idea. As the old saying, a terrorist in a headscarf, that's not a good idea, right? So, yes. Paul. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a quick comment about Psalm 1 and then go over to uh, uh, Proverbs 14 again about the way of the wicked. Yes. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk, who does not stand, who does not sit, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, well, Jesus did walk in the way of the sinners, not to be identified by them, but to be, that's what is, he was here to do. Yes. Uh, he was the only one who could do it. And he did stand, and he did sit. Not only that, he ate with sinners, yes. you know? So I think I'd like to get a little bit further commentary about yeah, absolutely. the way of the wicked. Um, let me give you a good example. Jesus went into the wilderness, but you and I are never called to the wilderness. We're called to the fellowship. So you'll see misguided Christians throughout the ages. They'll say, well, I'm going to the wilderness because Jesus did. Well, Jesus also is truly God and truly man. He's the sinless one. So when Jesus went into the wilderness, he brought a sinless perfection. I go to the wilderness, I bring my sinful nature. So when Jesus sits with the sinner, he brings his sinful sinless perfection i sit with the sinners i bring my sin nature okay so when i go into the now that doesn't mean by the way we should be a bunch of um hermits or we should all of a sudden try to divorce ourselves from society we're to be in the world but not of it we're to be light but the point is is we don't we don't delve into what they do we stay far away from them and there's times where you know where if you're bumping shoulders with somebody who's a pagan at the grocery store or your neighbor, etc., that's one thing. But it's another thing to say, hey, they're looting. I think I'll join in. Um, they're, they're having this conference where they're going to mock God. I think I'll join their conference. Not to understand what they're saying, but because I agree. It's that we don't join the mocker. We don't do what they do. And so, again, Jesus sits with the sinner because he brings the sinless nature. He goes into the wilderness. He brings the sinless nature. You and I are called to the assembly knowing our weaknesses, that we're going to encourage one another, as it says in Hebrews, as the day draws near. Yeah, so that's how I would answer that, Paul. Hope that, does that help? Yeah. Oh, very good. Excellent. Good questions. Very good. Anybody else before I move on? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Rich. John MacArthur made a comment about this very passage yeah. in, as far as the university, the university system or the college system goes in that they are mocking God in so many different ways, but yet for a Christian to get an education, we find ourselves at the University of Minnesota yeah. or wherever, and we are really being squeezed out of society because I'm going to spend big bucks to send my kid to college, and they're going to become more godless in the process, even if it's a Christian college. And what I'm trying to say is we're being absolutely squeezed out by this mocking process, which has become higher education. Yes. And so we are such at a disadvantage in this situation where the whole world is just encroaching even on something that it seems like we might need, like higher education. Yeah, well said, Rich. And that's where um, kids going into higher education, they really are going to have to be grounded in the scriptures. They're really going to have to be grounded because um, it really is, it's a, it's a battleground. And uh, one of the problems that I've seen in evangelicalism is that many of the programs that are out there aren't building a robust theology in the kids or helping them with apologetics and understanding the categories 
but it's simply to try to have your best life now. It's kind of the, the attitude. How to have your best dating life. Well, when the atheist professor gets up and says, well, there's no evidence for the resurrection, or why don't you believe in evolution as the origins? If they're not equipped to understand what the Bible says, they're not equipped to give an answer. Remember, we're all called to give an answer for those who ask us with gentleness and respect. We're called to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. These are things that were commanded by God, and that's where we really have to get the kids in the scriptures. If they're believers, they're going to want to learn, and they're going to grow, and they'll never be displaced. For those that aren't true believers, the world is going to gobble them up. And, and a lot of the gobbling will occur, I think, in academia, absolutely. Uh, people at the end of the day, as it says in Second Timothy, they'll heap up teachers after their own desires. I had some relatives, they wanted to hear Marxism at their church. Guess what they got? They got a church that taught them Marxism. That's what they got. Because they'd rather follow Karl Marx than Jesus Christ. They followed their God, and that's what they get. So that's the way it is. People will always heap up for themselves what they want to hear. And if they want to hear a professor say that God isn't true and the promises aren't valid, they'll listen to it. If, they, if they're true believers, they won't listen to the professor. So, yeah, well, well, well said. Okay, so let's keep going here. I'll get to my last slide here. And we see we're to stay on the path of righteousness. He says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. And put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Now notice here Solomon piles up the entreaties. Notice he says, my son, give attention to my words. Then he adds to that, incline your ear to my sayings. Then he adds to that, do not let them depart from your sight. And then he adds to that, keep them in the midst of your heart. Now, why would he say keep them in the midst of your heart? What do you think he means by that? Has anyone got any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, um, as Bob has been showing us for years and years, the problem with the people of God is we tend to forget. And that's why we're called to remember. The idea, of, the idea here of keeping them in the midst of your heart, remember the Hebrews understood the heart as the center of the thought life. Okay, so they knew the heart was an organ that pumped blood, but they used the heart metaphorically often like we do. We'll say one football team, they played with a lot of heart, and no one criticizes people that use heart that way. Well, that's how they understood it. The heart was the center of the thought life. And that's why, notice in blue in verse 23, it says, watch over your heart with all diligence. So the idea there is to watch your thought life. What are you thinking on, dwelling on? Is it the promises of God, the scriptures, or is it those things which cause stumbling? It's going to be one or the other. In fact, notice he says, for from it flow the springs of life. As a man thinks, so he is. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What makes us be on the path of righteousness is that our mind was renewed once and for all at salvation 
and day by day as we learn the scriptures, we're being transformed, more conformed to the image of the Son rather than the world. That's the idea. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark 7, 21 through 23. Mark 7, 21. I just want you to see how Jesus understood the heart as the center of thought life. Again, Mark 7, 21 through 23. Mark 7, 21 through 23. Now remember, this is that section where the religious leaders of Israel, they're attacking Jesus and his disciples because the disciples didn't wash their hands before they would eat or they would drink. Now, where under the old covenant were you commanded to wash your hands? Well, the general person was never commanded that. So this is a self-imposed law a commandment of men, not of God. So number one, his, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, are not violating the Mosaic Covenant. But notice what Jesus says is important. He ups the ante here. Notice verse 21. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as all deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. By the way, going back to your question, Paul, that's one of the issues why you'll hear certain Christians who will say, well, if we were just getting, if we'd get away from such and such, or we would go out into the wilderness, and if we could just get away from these evildoers, then we're going to be fine. The problem is we bring our sin nature with us. So what's the real issue for the Christian? It's the sin nature within and notice he says in verse 21, it's for from within the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts. Notice that's the link between the heart and the center of the thought life. That's exactly how Jesus understands the heart. It's the center of your thought life. So as you think differently, you're going to act differently. If you think like the world, you'll act like the world. If you think like Karl Marx, you'll act like Karl Marx. If you think like Jesus Christ you'll act like Jesus Christ. So who are you going to follow? That's the idea. How, what's going to inform your thought life? It's either the scriptures or it's going to be something else. Notice the link to how we think, to how we speak. Notice in red, put away from you the deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. The deceitful mouth is one that speaks lies. And by the way, this is why we know that the Messiah is being referred to in Isaiah 53. Let me show you how you can prove this. This is a great thing to, to know if you're ever going to witness to Jewish people who are unbelievers. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 6, verse 5. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. We're not to have a deceitful mouth, but as sinners, we all do. The idea is if, as you grow in your knowledge of Christ, your mouth gets cleaner. Your mouth becomes less and less deceitful. Notice Isaiah 6, 5. Remember, this is where Isaiah sees the Holy One lifted up in the temple. And does he say, boy, I better run and approach him and grab onto him and never let go? No, listen to what he says. Isaiah 6, 5. This is Isaiah the prophet. He said, then I said, woe is me for I'm ruined. When he saw the Holy One lifted up, he was ruined. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Notice Isaiah's recognition that he has unclean lips, a mouth of deceit, and he lives amongst a people that have the same. Now, turn your Bibles ahead to Isaiah 53, 9. Let me prove to you that in Isaiah 53, this is important, that the suffering servant can't be Israel. It must be the Messiah, the one without sin. Isaiah 53, 9. Now, what did Isaiah say in Isaiah 6, 5? He said that he had unclean lips. He's, he's the prophet. And he lived amongst a people with unclean lips. They had deceitful mouths. Isaiah 53, 9. Whoever the suffering servant is, notice it says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death. By the way, that happens as Jesus is buried with Joseph Arimathea. So that's literally fulfilled 715 years later. But then he says, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So remember, Isaiah has a deceitful mouth, and he lives amongst the Israelites with deceitful mouths. But whoever is being referred to here in Isaiah 53, 9, there is no deceit in his mouth. Can the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 be Israel? No. no. They have deceitful mouths. They have unclean lips. Who does it have to be? It has to be the sinless one. It has to be a reference to the Messiah. Bob and I used this one day to lead a woman to faith by using Isaiah 53 and proving that it had to be the Messiah. And the Lord used it. We proved it in this way to say, yep, it's the Messiah, it's not Israel, as she had heard. Brothers and sisters, the point here, though, in Proverbs is having a deceitful mouth is something we as believers are to overcome. What we speak from our mouths reveals what's in our heart, that is our thought life. And so as we think better, scripturally, we talk better. That's the idea. Now, notice at the very end here, when he says, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Notice up above, look how important the path is. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Notice he says right after that, do not turn to the left nor the right. Or I'm sorry, the right nor the left. What's the point there? The point is that if you're on the straight and narrow path, the idea is to be focused on the way of righteousness. Not to be tempted to go to the right or the left, to deviate from the path of salvation, the path of righteousness that God has laid out in his word. That's what he's laying out. Notice what are we to turn? The term, by the way, turn there, shuv, that would be synonymous with repentance, turn your foot from evil. So if your foot is inclined to evil, turn from that. But don't turn from the straight and narrow path. Don't look to the left and the right. Just stay focused on the promises of God. That would be the idea. Keep focusing on the scriptures. Again, dear ones, there's only two paths in the book of Proverbs. The path of righteousness and salvation, which happens for the wise, and the path of unrighteousness and damnation for the path of the fool. There's only two paths. Let us be those who stay on the path of righteousness. Now, with that, I want to introduce something that I'm going to have you read about next week or for next week. And that is something I'm going to be doing in my eschatology course on YouTube. And I was very impressed with how Bob has laid out ideas in Acts chapter 20 and saying, hey, let's let the church critique it. What I want to do is run by you an interpretation that I have kind of changed in my own mind about the child of Revelation chapter 12. 
Do you remember in Revelation chapter 12, let me put up the debated text. There is a debate as to who the woman, the child, and the dragon are. And I think it's been primarily settled pretty much, but I think there's a, an enhanced reading we can gather. Let me read the text and let's talk about it. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 4. Notice here, John says that a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. Let me show you traditionally how this has been understood. Traditionally, can you see that, by the way? I'm sorry it's so small. It's got to fit on a screen for a... Does everyone see the woman equals Israel? Yes. The child is the Messiah. And by the way, you'll have this handout for next week, so don't worry if you don't have notes. Traditionally, this is the way I've understood it. The woman is Israel, and we know that for sure. Why? Because of the reference to Genesis 37, 9, the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, the, the thought has been that the child is the Messiah. We know it's for sure the Messiah because... He's the one, as it says in Psalm 2.9, that's going to reign over the nations with a rod of iron. And we know that the dragon is Satan. Do you know how we know that? Because John tells us, <laughs> right? So I'm not taking issue with any of that. That is exactly how we should understand it. But is it likely that there should also be a corporate identity behind all three of these? Now, let me explain why I think this matters. First of all, the woman. Certainly, let me pull up my pointer. There's a corporate identity to Israel. It's not just one person, Jacob, but it's the whole nation. I think in the same way, we have a corporate identity with the child who is the Messiah and his people. The reason this is going to be important is when this person is snatched up, the child, the term snatched up is actually the term for the rapture, harpazo. And what's always been really strange to me is why is it that Jesus is de being depicted as at his ascension being rescued from Satan. Because everyone knows, if you read the New Testament carefully, Jesus was not rescued at his ascension. He was victorious. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, he made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So Jesus, over and over at his ascension, is depicted not as being rescued from the wiles of Satan, but as the victor over Satan. And so the term harpazo the term for rapture, to me, better fits a rescue from Satan, which would certainly be the people, that is the corporate body of Christ. So yes, it's Christ, but it's his people. So I think we should have a corporate reading there. And obviously, there's a corporate reading behind dragon. Satan certainly is the one that is the dragon, but he's depicted as having seven heads and ten horns, right in the text. In fact, let me just back up. It's in the text itself. Does everyone notice that the red dragon had seven heads and ten horns? You'll see that come up again in Revelation chapter 17. The seven heads are the seven kingdoms that attacked Israel throughout their history. It's Egypt, it's Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then the Antichrist kingdom, a revived Roman empire from which you get the ten horns. So the ten horns will come from the seventh kingdom 
And there'll be kings themselves that will give their allegiance to the beast. So the idea is there's a corporate reading behind the dragon. Satan certainly is the one who's doing it, but he's using the nations to attack Israel. So my point in saying this is if there's a corporate identity, certainly to the woman, and there's a corporate identity to the dragon, certainly Satan and the nations, shouldn't there be a corporate identity to the child, namely the Messiah and his people? So what I want you to do for next week is, if you would, read Revelation chapter 12. Just read the whole thing. We'll cover the first six verses. But what I'm going to be looking for is your input as we lay this out for you. What I'm going to prove to you is I think that the evidence supports, yes, certainly the child is the Messiah, but it's Messiah and his people. And that explains why Harpazo is being used. It explains why it's a rescue from Satan rather than the ascension of Christ alone, which is a victory over Satan. And so I'll show you that I think that's the better reading. But again, I'd like your input, and maybe I'm all wet. But before I present this to the wider world over the Internet, I'd like to have my brothers and sisters here at Gospel of Grace to shoot back if I'm wrong on something and um, be corrected. Yes, Linda. So I find that very interesting, but then it, it confuses me of like, how can the woman and the child both be Israel? Like, that just seems odd to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that the woman and the child are both Israel. What I'm saying is that the child would be, in particular, Messiah's people, the church. Does that oh, make like sense? Now, certainly, oh. certainly there are Jewish people that are part of that. I'm not, so that's what his people, okay. Yes, I'm sorry, his people, I should have put me. church, yeah. Yep. Okay. So that would be the church. And the idea is that the church is harpazoed. It's snatched up to meet the Lord. That certainly is a rescue, right? Now, let me explain why I think this matters. As I'm debating on millennialist, what I want to show in Revelation chapter 12 is that when Satan is thrown down, he's thrown down not because of what Christ does at his first coming, but because of what Christ does at his second coming. So as the church is raptured and we go up, Satan goes down. It's as if, if the Lord says, you're not going to speak to my wife that way, my, my bride. That's what I see. So there's a process in the binding of Satan. So think about at the cross, the moment Jesus dies on the cross, according to Revelation 12.9, it was Satan that was making allegations. Is it 12.6 or 12.9? It's actually, I have it on here. I don't have to wonder. Yeah, 9. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at where he... Uh, Where does it say that he... Well, in the, in the text, Satan is the one who slanders us before the throne day and night. He does that day and night. Yes, I believe that that's occurring now during the church age. Okay, so what happens at the cross, think about this. The moment Jesus dies and he pays our penalty, there's no allegation that Satan can make that will stick. Now, will he still rail against us in the throne room of God? Yes. But the allegations won't stick. Why? Because it's been nailed to the cross. Payment's been paid in full. Okay? Well, from there, at the second coming, at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, Satan's going to be thrown down. After he's thrown down to the earth, what do you have? You have the greatest tribulation period of, of, the, of the entire world. Jesus says, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. Matthew 24, 22. Um, I, I, I believe it, it, it could be, Rich. I think it's probably at the beginning of the 70th week, but we'll, we'll look at it. That's something we can debate. 
But the idea is at the end of the 70th week, he's thrown where? Not just in, onto the earth, but he's thrown into the abyss. So from there, after the thousand years, then he's thrown into the lake of fire. So from the moment of the cross, it's a process, but Satan's, first of all, his allegations are not binding. They don't have any merit. Then he's going to be thrown down to the earth. Then he's thrown down into the abyss. Then he's thrown down into hell. Okay, Jesus is exalted right away. Right away after his death, he's put in a wealthy man's tomb. We just read about that, Isaiah 53, 9. Because there's no deceit in his mouth, right? So it's not much, but he's put in the wealthy man's tomb. That's just a little exaltation. But then he's raised from the dead on the third day. And then he ascends on high and he sits at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom over the entire earth. What do we pray over and over in Matthew chapter 6? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day he's coming and he's going to reign over the entire earth. And so he just goes up, up, and up after the cross. Satan is going to go down, down, and down. And so what I'm going to show you is, yes, Satan is going to be bound, thrown down to the earth, not at the first coming, but at the second coming. Yes, we got a question back there. Or, I'm sorry, Bob, did you have something? Well, quick, Paul. Well, the mic's gone in transit. Yeah. Is this the inverse or reverse of Isaiah 14? Uh, assuming yes. it's right to say Babylon is also kind of a persona. It's a real Babylon, and Satan's behind it. Yes. I will ascend, I will ascend, Yes, I he's going to exalt himself. Yeah, so ascend, ascend, ascend. It's going to go down, down, down. In Isaiah 14. Right. And then you're saying, no, later, down, down, down. Down, down, down. So Very he's going good. the opposite direction. Yes, he's going the opposite go. direction. Right. That's his boast, but where does he actually go? He goes down, down, and down. Well said. Yes, uh, Peter, or I'm sorry, no. Could you back up to your slide that you said we're going to discuss of the one in Revelation 12? Yes. One through, okay. Oh, oh, not so far. There you go. Okay, where you've got child equals Messiah and his people, yes. would it be helpful if you changed his people to his redeemed, which shows that it is the, the bought sure, blood people? Absolutely. Don't put the church because people might see that as building or structure. But if sure. it's his redeemed, Very that's, good. that is his... Yeah, it's yeah. anybody who is surrendered to his cross, his blood, yes. his redemption. Amen. Well, well said. I'll do that. I'll add that in there. Very good. Yeah, either way, the, the redeemed, maybe we'll use that just because of the, the, the idea of being purchased by the cross, but same idea. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you. So what we'll do is we'll wrestle through this interpretation, and I'll show you some things that I think kind of uh, prove, uh, hopefully, to your satisfaction. If not, I'll revise back to my, my old view was this view up here, so I'm not hurt. Oh, that was the view I held to, but I think really the child is best understood as Messiah and his people. So with that, I'll give you some homework for next week. We'll look at that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the wisdom that comes from the book of Proverbs, Lord. I pray that we would be those who stay on the straight and narrow path, that we wouldn't stray from it, that we wouldn't go after teachers who have different doctrines other than the ones that you've taught, Lord, that we would follow Christ and not Marx. That's so prevalent in this world. I pray for Bob as he teaches us today out of 1 Corinthians. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us ears to hear, to understand the text, that we may be doers and pleasers of you, Lord, through what we do and how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.